Welcome to Spin It, a business podcast that takes you into the lives of some of today's most influential leaders, entrepreneurs, game changers, athletes, and many more. On Spin It, we take a deep dive into the lives and journeys of our guests to deliver real, unfiltered, and unscripted conversations that will surely inspire hope and promote change. We focus not on their current success, but on the obstacles and challenges that they faced along the way that often doesn't get talked about. How they battled adversity, getting up and being knocked down when all of the odds were stacked against them. Today is going to be a raw conversation with the pioneer of CRM, Mr. John Ferrara. John was the first of the first with Goldmine Software many moons ago. This man is purely brilliant, tenacious, and hysterically funny. John is a lifelong entrepreneur and an incredible speaker. John is all things social, sales, and marketing. So much so, he reimagined CRM by building Nimble, the simple CRM for Microsoft 365 and Google Workspace. He has been recognized by countless magazines, most notable Forbes, as one of the top 10 social CEOs, top 10 social salespeople in the world, and top 100 marketing influencers. I get to interview John today from his treehouse in Santa Monica, California. John, welcome to the show. Hey, John, thank you so much for joining us. We are so looking forward to this amazing interview with you. How are you today? Stephanie, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for inviting me for a conversation. I find that I learn when I teach, and I think that that's why we're here, is to grow by helping other people grow. I could not agree more. So I want to start off by talking about your specific entrepreneurship journey. And when I was doing all the research, you know, I'm always fascinated with my guests, how bright they are and how curious they are. But you left a fairly cushy job at 28 years old. Why? What was the whole caveat between doing this and and starting? So at 28, I was working as an enterprise uh, sales rep making north of $200,000 a year and living the good life, living in Dallas. I had a ski boat and it was really awesome. So I was, I had a great job, but I felt a ping in my heart for a problem that I had as a sales rep. And that problem was, is they put me in the field and said, go get customers. And they gave me leads, which were pieces of paper with phone numbers on them of big IT people, of big companies. And I cold call them, make notes on the paper. And I put my appointments, my daytime, and my forecast on a spreadsheet. And I said, this is really dumb. And because I had a computer science uh, degree and I worked in a computer store through my degree, I knew every software program on the market. I knew there wasn't a program that integrated email, conic, and calendar and sales and market automation. And I felt like I can go do that. I can go build it. And it really was a series of lessons that I learned in my life that prepared me to jump out of that airplane, to jump off that cliff. And one of the biggest ones was I worked at a large aerospace company, a plant site, 15,000 people were in in the site I was. It was Hughes Aircraft in their missile systems division. And there was this older guy that I would see every once in a while because I was able to roam the whole plant site and I met a lot of people. And he was a friend of my uncle. He was an electrical engineer. And he, he used to always say to me, shoulda, coulda, woulda, John. Shoulda, coulda, woulda. Yeah. And I said, shoulda, coulda, woulda, what? And he said, well, you know, my friends left Hughes in the early days and started TRW. And another one left and started Litton. And these are all big aerospace companies back in the day. And I shoulda, coulda, woulda left and done it with them. They invited me. And that stuck with me because, you know, I think you don't want to have any regrets in life. and. Yeah. At 28 years old, with the knowledge that I had, the skills that I had already had, I knew I could go get a job. So that wasn't my worry. 
my worry was that I wasn't going to take that shot of something that was really speaking to my heart. And I did. So we're going to talk about gold mine in the next segment, but that for me is so, it's so moving because when I founded my first company, I did so with $1,500 and a laptop. There was no, as you well know, there was no SEO, there was no LinkedIn, there was no Google AdWords, there was no Facebook, there was none of that stuff. I did it 100% drive and tenacity. And like you, John, which I want to talk to you about, I did not want VC money. I had been down that road. First of all, I didn't believe I was savvy enough to do it and do it responsibly, number one. Number two, I didn't want any control because I had a vision of what I wanted and I was hearing directly from the people that would actually be customers, the people that would actually use it. So I did it with $1,500. I did it as a single mom. Um, I did it after leaving Actuate. Uh, which was, Pete was like, are you insane? And I did it with zero consulting experience whatsoever. I just knew that I could create a better service. So when I look at you and I look at how you started Goldmine with $5,000, is that right? Yeah. Tell me about that. Why didn't you take loans? Why didn't you do VCs? Tell me what you did with that $5,000 initially. So I started Goldmine with a college friend of mine, Elon Susser. He was the smartest guy in the class next to me. We did all our math classes together. So we took Calc 1, 2, 3, differential equations, linear algebra, and numerical analysis together. And we sat in the front and we got straight A's and it was somebody I respected. And so when I went to go start Goldmine, I picked him not only because he was bright, because he was fresh off the boat from Israel when I met him and he was tough. You know, I don't know if you know any Israelis, but they're they're tough, tough. and smart. Yeah. yeah. And so there we were in the apartment and uh, we needed to basically sell stuff. And so I started by trying to actually go sell to customers. But there's only eight hours in a day of that. You could actually see customers, right? There's We work 24 hours a day at night making brochures and doing the things you need to do. But I found that it's more effective to find the trusted advisor of your prospecting customer and build a relationship with them so you could scale to their customers. And that's what I did. So I uh, identified the influencer of my prospect, that was SMBs that, uh, that had networks. And I found the guy that sold on the networks, the Novell reseller, and I got them to use it because people sell what they know and they know what they use. And then they started to use it and then recommend it. And that's how we got to our first $100,000 a month in revenue. And no, it wasn't easy to get there. And there were times when, you know, I was just saying, really, (laughs) can I do this? But, you know, little magical things happen. And I do, I truly believe that if you put your prayers out to the universe and you trust in the universe and you are present enough to listen for when the universe knocks and then brave enough to open the door and even braver to walk through it, that's when magic happens in your life. So John, tell me, like, when did you want to quit? Like, give me a real life example. Like one of the biggest things for me in connecting with these entrepreneurs and connecting with these people that are, that have these brilliant ideas is the fruition is seeing it through. The ideas are amazing and they're great. And they're also now there's so many smart people and there's so many schools that are so focused on drawing these ideas out, but the execution is just not there. Tell me whenever you were just like, you know, you and Elon are in the apartment and you're like, I don't know if this is going to work. What did that look like? At the same time as starting Goldmine, I started a serious relationship with my now wife of 30 years, and uh, Hilan wasn't happy about that. We, we shared a two-bedroom condo, and he'd throw his shoes at the door. 
uh, while we were in there. It's like, it's just got weird. And, and uh, <laughs> so I moved out. And there were times when, you know, there was a struggle between having a wife and a life and growing a business. And, um, and there are many times when I would be driving home because I had to live in Newberry Park because I couldn't afford Los Angeles. So yeah. I lived in Ventura County, which was at times two hours away, depending on traffic, fires, flood, mud, and all the things that happened up PCH and into the Canal Valley. And uh, there's times I drive home and I'd literally be crying. I mean, I was just like, I was at the end of my rope. And it wasn't any one particular thing. It's a series of things, you know, making payroll. You work for your team as a leader and uh, and you got to make payroll and not pay yourself. And then, you know, all the drama that goes with that of struggling financially and, and trying to explain to your wife why this is all worth it. And so there were a number of moments where I, I kind of broke down and there were days, a couple of days, I didn't even go in the office. I just, I had it. And, um, and I think we all go through that just like an athlete and you break through that wall and so many people quit right at the moment before things really happen. And, and, and I pursued and things happened and it just started to accelerate. So that for me and our listeners is a key thing. Just push through when that one thing is happening. You know, I find a lot of times whenever I'm coaching new entrepreneurs, you know, when's a good time to pivot? And, and, and literally John, it's like three months, six months, nine months. I'm like, Oh no, no, no. Like you have to keep going. This is not a pivot plan yet. Um, yeah. but just push through and keep going. Cause it's right before that magic happens. Just like you said. And, and one of the best things I think that we did was really listen to our customers. I think that if you build a minimally viable product and then listen to the customers and iterate with them in the most effective way, that's when things really happen. And I was lucky that my co-founder, who was the sole programmer that we had at Goldmine for the first five years, he kicked ass with, with code. And, uh, and I'd tell him, okay, Elon, we need to have this. And I'd have it literally within a day or two or three. And so we could just keep delivering uh, additional enhancement that delighted our customers and really set us apart. And I, and I have to say this, like, I mean, obviously Goldmine is, is 22 million years old like me. And I was, <laughs> and I was one of the first adopters. And I, and I will tell you, in being in sales, I will tell you begrudgingly, Okay. When Pete and Nico walked into Actuate and they said, this is goldmine. I was like, absolutely not. Those relationships are my network. Like what happens if I get mad and I leave tomorrow and all of their data, you know, their wife's birthdays and you know, their kids' graduations and their, like, I don't want to put that in there. And, and I, I remember having this conversation very specifically with Mike Thoma and Al Campa and all the old guys going stuff. You're going to use this. And I'm like, I'm 190% a quota. Like you cannot have me use this. And as it went on, I felt so heard and so listened to by your team. Hey, is there any way we can tweak this and make this look like this? Or, hey, you know, what about adding a cell for this? And, and I have to tell you, it's one of the things, John, that you got so right that maybe, you know, maybe Siebel didn't get quite as right. Maybe Salesforce at the earlier days didn't get quite as right. We did feel heard as a company and an early adopter of Goldmine and what is amazing team that you put together. I want to talk about you rolling in the $100 million revenue mark. What did it take to get there at such a young age, $100 million in revenue? Was it a difficult journey? What are some of the things you would have changed or done exactly the same? Well, I think that one of the key things that we did to scale 
was identify a way to access customers efficiently and effectively. And it started with the Novell resellers where we uh, cold called them, got them to use it, uh, got them to recommend it. And I started to basically hire people to manage these resellers that I was bringing on board. And then I built a team of people to start to engage with the customers because I really believe that buyers on their journey want to have conversations with people. And so I would hire people to listen to the customers, the constituency on their journey. The constituency is more than just end users. It's prospects and resellers and business partners and editors and all these people you have to have conversations with. And rather than going out and hire technology degrees or business degrees, I hired liberal arts majors because they were really affordable and they knew how to read, write, and communicate effectively. And if you could transform somebody's life, especially a liberal arts major, and really teach them technology and business and grow them from making nothing to making over $100,000 a year and more and, and having a lot of responsibility, you transform people's lives. And when you transform people's lives, you build a culture that's unstoppable. And so that was the sort of the foundation that got us, say, the first 10 million or maybe 15 or 20. But then Microsoft came in and Microsoft doesn't innovate, they iterate. They wait for somebody else to build the market and then they come in when it's big enough and they build something good enough and they use their muscle to dominate. Their muscle is billions of users and hundreds of thousands of ours and they ate Novell. And so we saw the writing on the wall and we started building for Microsoft. In fact, Microsoft sort of iterated into Goldmine by building Outlook. So Goldmine predates CRM and Outlook and Salesforce and Siebel. So we were the first team contact manager, and we really designed the foundation of not CRM, but a relationship system for the whole company. But Microsoft basically then came out with Outlook, and it became the standard contact platform. So we had to find a different place to dance. We dance above Outlook, and Microsoft came out with Small Business Server, which was SQL Server, Exchange Server, and NT Server, and they wanted to sell that. But they couldn't sell SQL Server unless there was an application that called for it. So we built Goldmine Enterprise, which required a seed of NT Server, SQL Server, and Exchange Server for every seed of Goldmine, which helped our resellers make $10 in every Goldmine dollar, helped our end users scale because DBase doesn't scale like SQL, and we became Microsoft's number one ISV. And that, in and of itself forced Microsoft to push the crap out of us globally. And it was that combination of intelligent business development, partnering with the right partners like Microsoft and, and Intuit and others, but then telling stories and getting other people to tell those stories because it's more powerful when other people talk about you than when you talk about you. So in addition to building the reseller channel, we built a global brand by helping the editors at the business and technology publications start talking about CRM because they, they didn't even know what CRM was. And so I called all the editors of the biggest magazines and, and literally taught them about CRM. In fact, the head of basically the second in command at Salesforce, John Tasik, was the editor at PC Computing when I met him. And it was through that collaboration that they started to cover us. And then basically, we ended up winning more awards and got more print than all the other products combined. So then you got the PR going and then you intermix that with some intelligent marketing because you need to touch the customer from 360 degrees. So if their technology advisors recommending it and the products that they use, like Microsoft is recommending it and Intuit QuickBooks is recommending it and the magazines give it an editor's choice and they talk about it and then they see it on the airline magazine and they hear it on the radio 
and their friends tell them about it, well, shit, you're golden. You're and covered. That's you're covered. That's basically how we got to 100 plus million a year. How did you handle the demand? Like when you're, when I look back on when I was doing this and, and you know, at a very, very young age, I know that that yeah. was the big balance was, okay, all of this stuff starts to actually really unfold and it's real, you know, it's not smoke yeah. and mirrors, it's real. How did your salespeople and how did, how did you guys go through and how did you process the demand? Was there ever a lull? Was there ever a time where you guys couldn't get over the hump? So yes, we literally couldn't produce the boxes fast enough. So I'd love to show you a picture. I actually have a photograph of me shrink wrapping a gold mine box in a in, in the back warehouse thing. And we literally used to produce the boxes ourselves. And uh, it got to a point where it got so big, we built relationships with distributors. And so I went and signed up, you know, Tech Data, Miracell, Ingram, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and we started to manufacture at a separate site and drop ship to them. But that was only possible because we'd already built the reseller channel and the and demand. Most people don't understand what a distributor is today. Most SaaS CEOs don't have any idea who Microsoft is, let alone what distribution is. They generate their uh, eyeballs with AdWords and they, and they shoot them into SDRs that bag them and tag them. And that's very expensive and it doesn't scale as effectively as uh, building relationships with a trusted advisor and scaling through distribution, which we're actually replicating with Nimble today. And, and so by scaling through distribution, we not only can serve the existing base of resellers and customers, but we could also uh, onboard tens of thousands of others. And literally we had tens of millions of customers and tens of thousands of resellers globally. So John, we're going to talk about Nimble in a second, but Goldmine specifically, when you were going through and you were leading all of these people, looking back on it now, okay, what was the number one mistake that you made? Not doing what I love and invest at. I think that we really started to accelerate when I hired people better, smarter, faster than me in the areas that I wasn't as passionate about and doing the things that I was passionate about. And so... I went and stole a uh, VP of sales from a competitor and uh, well, he was a sales rep back in the day, but I, I saw his potential and I put him in charge of sales and, and did that in a number of different fronts. And I focus on storytelling. I think that if you could tell great stories, get other people to tell those stories and not about how great your products and services are because nobody cares about your products and services. Nope. They don't buy great products. They buy a better version of themselves. And so we told stories about how People can achieve their dreams by building relationships at scale as a team. And that's what I focused on. And I loved it. And, uh, and I, I wasn't bad at it. So describe to me the decision to sell Goldmine. What happened for you? And then what yeah. was next? Well, it's 1999 and, and I already had more money I could ever imagine in my life in the bank. And the stock market was going crazy. It was just nutty, almost like today. And, and I said to myself, this won't go on. This can't go on. And I'd spent 10 years giving up everything for Goldmine to make it happen. I really lost touch with uh, my friends, my community, even my family to a certain extent because it consumed me. I mean, it required everything I had. And I said to myself, how much is enough and how much do you need? And, I, and, and what is really life worth being present with the people you love. And so I said, you know what, let's sell this thing. And, uh, and we hired Broadview, which at the time was one of the top 
M&A companies, and they did something smart. They they reached out years earlier and built pay forward relationships with us, became our trusted advisor. And when I decided to sell, we picked up the phone and called them. Wow, amazing. I want to talk about perseverance. One of the things that I've battled in the last couple of years in coaching executives and coaching entrepreneurs, when to give up, when to push forward and obstacles. A lot of times when I'm talking to people or I'm speaking in an event, they think that we just got here. Like we arrived, we knew somebody and we haven't really faced any massive obstacles in our life. And I know for me, I have had a series of obstacles from a very, very young age where my father drowned. My mother had severe mental illness. I was emancipated at 15. Um, I had no kind of adult supervision to run things past. And I know that this was kind of one of the things in my life that continued to happen. I know for you, you had a massive obstacle that was out of the blue. Can we talk about cancer? Sure. I really believe that we should all share our journeys more honestly with each other because it's what help us helps us all grow. Right. And, you know, I was looking at Facebook the other day and I saw a cousin that, you know, everything was just perfect. And I just thought, you know, how great for her. And then I was talking to another cousin and, and she was sharing how much she struggles. And maybe she doesn't even understand how much she's, why she struggles because there's actually mental illness that runs in our family right. and people don't talk about it. Yep. And so I think that, Talking about my cancer journey helps others who inevitably will go through it. And so uh, there I was at 41 years old. I'd sold gold mine a, a year before. I had more money I could ever imagine in the bank. My second baby was just born and I got diagnosed with a head tumor. And it was shocking, you know? It's like, why would I get a head tumor? And I started to try to investigate what's the causals for head tumors. And What's the solution for this? And I think that when you get sick, you have to become your own advocate because doctors practice medicine. They're not perfectionists. They don't know everything. And you need to go and learn as much as you can about your disease and the in uh, your options and then make your choices and commit yourself to that journey. And so I did that investigation. I committed to a particular doctor at UCLA who had a new experimental treatment and I also combine that with Eastern medicines and meditations and other means of, of finding health. And, you know, thank God, 40, 20 years later, 21 years later, I'm, I'm here today to talk about that journey. But I think that it was harder on my, my family and the people who love me than it was on me. And I'm going to give you an analogy for that. Have you ever been driving in a bumpy or kind of in a, in, a, in a situation where it just felt unsafe as a passenger in a car. But as the driver and you got your hand on the wheel, you don't feel as unsafe because you're in control, right? And so when you're going through cancer, you're going through the treatment and you're kind of in control to whatever extent you can be. So it was hard on me, but I think it was even harder on my family and the people who love me. For certain. And then having a brand new baby and then your wife being faced with this. I can't, I've had a loved one who had a very similar um, diagnosis and their baby was two. And you're right. It was more devastating for her, yeah. meaning like, oh gosh, all these kids, all of these responsibilities, all of these, and then still focusing and being present as go going through treatment as a major supporter. So I couldn't agree with you more. How do you take it every day? Like 
Are you doing scans? Are you worried? Whenever that you feel under the weather, when you feel a little foggy, do you wonder if it's back? Well, it's been so long. You know, they say five or 10 years, whatever it is. And during that period of time, I was getting CT scans and blah, blah, blah. But they, you know, the doctors at UCLA basically kicked me out and said, you're, you're done. But since then, uh, you know, I, I am half Irish. So I'm fairly fair skinned and uh, I live in Southern California. And so you, um, you inevitably get those facial things. And I've gotten Mohs procedures uh, and things cut off my face. So anybody listening to this today, I'm just going to be clear about the, the cancers that I've had so that you could be more aware and, and go get yourself checked up periodically. So there's a thing called HPV virus, uh, human papilloma virus. Uh, you can get it through uh, sexual transmission. I think 80 million Americans or more have it. And uh, back when I was a kid, um, it was the free 70s and it was amazing. <laughs> but uh, so I contracted uh, HPV and uh, it's the number one cause of death in men and women in their 40s uh, from uterus cancer, oral cancer and others. And so for anybody listening to this, if you have children, give them the HPV virus vaccine. It's called the Guardia virus uh, vaccine, uh, something like that. And, uh, and get yourself checked up. Be aware that this does occur in that time period. And then uh, wear sunscreen, wear hats, and uh, see a skin doctor regularly to get yourself checked up. Thank you for saying that because I really think everybody needs to be checked. And I think that, you know, I'm kind of a little bit of a Nazi with my kids. If I see like a new mole or I see, yeah. you know, like a discoloration, I'm, they're fast into the dermatology. So thank yeah. you very much for bringing that up. And Stephanie, I want to interrupt you. Yeah. You mentioned that you struggled as a young person and yeah. your mom had mental illness. And, uh, and I just want to share a story of my youth because I think it reflects on who who I am today and the capabilities that I developed because of the struggles I went through. And maybe you can identify with some of this. So my mom was Liz Taylor, beautiful, but unfortunately she struggled with manic depressive schizophrenia and she dealt with that with uh, alcohol. And so uh, my mom and dad got divorced when I was two. I lived with my mom for a couple of years until it became unstable. Uh, during that time, she was actually Duke Ellington's girlfriend, uh, I just found out. So I found this photograph of my sister on stage with Duke Ellington, and there was love in his eyes, and I never really understood. It was a beautiful, like, 8 by 10 photograph. And so one of my cousins told me the story, and I didn't believe it, so I actually verified with another cousin. And, uh, yep, that's true. But she was divorced at the time, and I was happy that she had that relationship. But... Getting to the point of the story, my youth was rough and it was because it was so rough, I learned as a young child to read people, to be very sensitive to things around me. And I think it's that ability to sense and read, which gives me the ability to sense and read my issues that I had with managing relationships and sales process and other people's needs and to be able to synthesize net new solutions. That's one. The other thing I learned from that chaos was the ability to be brave enough to be an entrepreneur because I don't think it's for everybody. If you're listening to this, don't think that everybody in the world should be an entrepreneur because they, they, we have all types of people. And so you know if you're a risk taker and if you are a risk taker, you probably fit a profile for potentially being an entrepreneur. But if you don't like to take risks, you probably don't want to be an entrepreneur. 
And because of the environment that I grew up in, I think it prepared me to be the person that the successful person that I am today. So not, not everything in your life that's, that's rough is necessarily, uh, there's things to learn in all situations is what I'm saying. I appreciate that and that you are willing to share so much. I'm an open book, John. We've talked about this. I'm very, very transparent for so long. You know, it wasn't popular back when I was 20. I was the, I was the only um, woman in the boardroom ever. I was always the youngest. I was always the least educated. We were right next to Stanford. I went to a state school. Um, I had to really show up and I had to prove myself. And I remember being in those. Yeah, hey, I'm a statey too. <laughs> <laughs> being in those in those rooms with you know these brilliant you know B school and you know Stanford and all yeah. of these big big names, you do have imposter syndrome. And I remember I remember so innately walking out of VC meetings with Kleiner or walking out with Battery or walking out with Crystal. And I remember walking out. And they were saying, Stephanie, how did you read that room so well? And I couldn't say, John, what you just said. I, yeah. I was too young. I was too inexperienced. Yeah. You know, I was 23 years old. Like you said, I was 23 years old, making $150,000 a year because I knew how to read people. I would be written up by bosses because I didn't ask for the sale, but I knew there was no way I was getting that sale because I could tell by their body language and how they were yeah. looking. And, and so yeah. as you stated so, so eloquently, you're a hundred percent right. That was yeah. my intuition. That was my driver, the chaos and being able to know who I was coming home to that day, what it was going to look like for the evening is 100% why I made it so well in sales and ultimately in, in long-term great relationships that I have with my clients. So thank you for bringing that up. So let's go back. So you took a 10-year hiatus completely away from technology, and then when you decided to return, so much had changed. How difficult was it for you? What were some of the things that you noticed? Well, so I spent 10 years raising three babies and for any of the dads listening to this today, it was the best gift I ever could have given myself because I grew so much as a human being. The way that you grow as a human being is by being present with people who love you, especially your kids, and they'll reflect your shit back at you. And if you're willing to look at your shit in life and work on it, that's how you grow as a human being. And that's what I did for 10 years, amongst many other things. I got a degree in photography. I shot SC football for 10 years and blah, blah, blah. And I remodeled my house. And that three-year project remodeling my house got my product brain back in gear. So I was actually, I was really toned from a mental perspective because I spent 10 years remodeling a 1929 old Spanish house. And it was about this time that Twitter came out. And I remember listening to Leah Laporte interview and I said, well, shit, I got to go try that. And I got signed up for a Twitter account. And I said, hello world. <laughs> and it's like, okay, what are we doing here? But you know, it seemed natural to me because I'm a relationship guy at heart. My dad, I used to cringe when he would talk to everybody. My dad was the number one Lincoln Mercury guy in the country in the fifties, the first Subaru dealership in California in the seventies an entrepreneur and my inspiration. So I'm a relationship guy at heart. And I started using Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and I started to swim and dance in that river. And what I saw was it was an excellent place to inspire and educate others and connect at scale. And so what I did is I would, as I swim Twitter and LinkedIn, I would see people that resonated with me and I'd share their content, hashtag and attribute them accordingly and then interact with them and then reel them in for a face-to-face -face conversation. And as I was doing that, 
I was literally rebuilding my brand and my network that had been non-existent. I'd been out of technology for 10 years. And so there I was building all these relationships and it was really great. But then what do I do with these connections? So I look for a relationship manager that enabled me to connect these conversations I was having in the Twitter <coughs> UI and the LinkedIn UI and the Facebook UI to a contact platform. So I started to look for something. I found Hootsuite, which enabled me to track the conversations, but not connect them to people. Mm -hmm. I found Google Contacts, which was a cloud-based email contact and calendar system that didn't link email calendar to contacts, let alone social. I looked at CRM and saw it wasn't even about relations, it was about reporting. CRM stands for customer relationship management, but it should stand for customer reporting management because most CRMs aren't about relationships, they're about command and control. The reason they call it Salesforce, you have to force salespeople to use it. They're not built for relationships, they're built basically to track activities against leads. Right. And no manager even looks at the reports unless somebody's non performing. And then they go look at the report and they say, Why aren't you doing this? And it's really a joke. So Absolutely. I I basically felt the the sort of cord strings that I felt when Goldmine first came to fruition in my mind from my own pain. Because I think the best products come from your own pain because you're passionate about it and you understand the problem. And my problem was, how do I manage these relationships at scale that I'm building in social? But more importantly, how do I do that if I'm a team of people and I want to start to incorporate social into selling and relationships? There was no social serum. There was no social selling. I basically pioneered social serum and social selling by flying up to LinkedIn and meeting with their leadership team and convincing them to give me their public and private APIs. And I basically wrapped Nimble around G Suite, Google Mail, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Crunchbase, AngelList into a, a relationship platform that automatically built itself by unifying the contacts you already had, synchronizing email and calendar interactions, and then working back where you interact because the number one biggest cause of failure of CRM is lack of use. And that's because you work for it, you Google people for a meeting, and then you gotta go type that in the CRM, then you go engage wherever you can, and then you gotta go back and type that into the CRM, and nobody does it, and if they did do it, it would decay like rotten fish because the data basically gets old, and that's why your CRM should work for you by building itself, and then work where you work, which is in your inbox, in social, and whatever business apps you use. So John, for our listeners, I want to take a step back, okay? So I did not, I want to just be really transparent and very transparent with our audiences. I, I tell them everything. If I know, I, I know, and if I don't, I don't. I didn't know anything about you. Um, I saw you speak, and I was like, he's freaking cool, and he's real. So like, I want to continue to educate my listeners by giving them real people who are going to go, that was a mistake. That was a mistake. This is a failure. This is how you grow from the failure. I didn't want all this fluffy crap. And so I, I fell in love when I heard you speak. I didn't know about Nimble at all. Okay. So before you and I chatted, let me tell you my meeting right before you. I wanted to fire three people because I was so tired of talking about process, workflow, and relationships. I, and, and again, being completely transparent, you saw how I was getting on the meeting. You saw I was completely torn up. I had just gotten out of the shower. I wasn't feeling well because I had spent two hours again discussing process, workflow, and relationships. And then you are my next call. And I said to you, I'm so frustrated. And you go, tell me about it. And I said, process, workflow. And you're like, you need nimble. <laughs> and I was, I was so excited. I got off the phone and I started doing all of this research. John, who needs nimble? Who's the ideal client? Tell me all things nimble. Who are the people that can benefit? What does this change in your life? 
If you're looking for a CRM to bag and tag prospects and customers, go by Salesforce. If you're looking for a relationship manager if that will enable you and your team to build pay it forward relationships at scale that help you turn your contacts into gold, buy Nimble. So our focus is about building relationships at scale and that's what you need to do as an individual or a company. CRMs shouldn't just be about prospects and customers. It's about your constituency around your business. At Nimble, I connect to editors, analysts, bloggers, influencers, third-party developers, investors, advisors, and prospects and customers. And it's not just me that does it. My whole team gets involved in that entire journey. And the biggest problem I have with things like Salesforce is it's for prospects and customers and salespeople. But, and the rest of the company lives in I guess Microsoft 365 and Google, which really suck as contact managers because every single team member has a separate contact database and email and calendar aren't even linked to that. And so in most companies today, there isn't a team relationship manager like I pioneered with Goldmine. So Nimble is for any business professional or team that values relationships and understands how to turn relationships into revenue and is interested in investing in that over time. Amazing. So... Is this for small businesses? Can you scale it? Is it international? Is it global? Like, talk to me about the actual use case. Like, who are the users yeah. of this? So I think that the best users of Nimble are individuals and teams and small, medium, large, and enterprise companies. Because even in enterprises, they don't necessarily want to go out and take eight months and $80,000 to build a, a an instance of Salesforce or Dynamics to do a particular use case for a business team. And so we're used by the SEMrush team for their influencer uh, outreach uh, community. We're used at Adobe. Uh, we're used at small mom and pop businesses. So we're used at a variety of sizes and we're used globally. 60% of our customers are overseas. And I think the main use case of Nimble is uh, we're selected typically by a business decision maker, the owner, somebody in biz dev, sales, marketing, and we're best used in conjunction with Microsoft 365, Google Workspace, or Gmail, because we're a layer on top of those systems that you already have in your business. So every business has Microsoft or Google as their email, or both. And today, your contact database in those platforms are separate contact databases for every team member, and the email and calendar history isn't, isn't, inter, isn't synced to that record effectively. And there's no date on that person. And it's your job to know somebody before you engage with them. You're supposed to Google people for a meeting so you know who they are and what their business is about. So you come prepared. Tomorrow, you're going to nimble them because nimble will automatically build a record for you from literally a name. You could highlight a name in a Forbes article and it will automatically, and it will our browser plugin, automatically build the record and add it to your nimble database. And then you could put them on a workflow. What is a workflow? You know what? Please tell me what a workflow is, John. I want to know. What is a workflow? Every business has people and company repeatable processes that you typically put people through. I'll give you an example of that. If I'm going to hire somebody, there's a workflow for that. So what I'll typically do, my team will put an ad in the usual places. Then the, the emails come in with the, with the resumes. And then what they'll do is they'll put them in a workflow for new hire. And they'll do a sniff test on that person, which means... Look at their resume and look at their LinkedIn. Do they pass the basic test of, yes, should we invest in, in speaking to this person? If so, then we'll schedule an interview. Someone will interview them. If they pass that, then they go to the next stage, 
which is uh, we give them an assignment that basically says, here, show us some of your work product. If they pass that, then they go to the second interview. And if they pass that, we'll check references. And that's, it's a board, Kanban board, that has a series of stages that you define with cards on people or companies with fields that relate to what you're tracking in that workflow process. And if you think about it, workflow processes occur in sales, marketing, customer service, accounting, influencer, analyst, fundraising, all those things. And so what what I did was I struggled with influencer and PR outreach uh, and I my team was resorting to spreadsheets. And I said, let's eat our own dog food. And and so we got tired of the spreadsheets and we tried Trello. Okay, great. So there's a board I can go ahead and use and define the processes, but the spreadsheet and the boards aren't tied to the people and companies that we're engaging with. And so if I in my email and I want to put somebody on a process or I want to check the process, I can't do it. And so I basically said, well, workflows are kind of like a deal pipeline, but it's basically more focused on repeatable people and company processes. So we built a Kanban board and we let you, we built templates for all the common things that you would do. And you can select those templates and modify them or build your own. And I think that this is going to change the way people use Nimble because historically, if you put a contact in a CRM, you schedule the next task for them. Okay, great. But it really is a series of things that you should be doing. And how do you teach your team members what those series of things are and make sure that they actually do them in the standard processes? It's a lot of work to onboard and teach people. But if you document your processes and build workflows for them and you tie them to a team contact database and use it across your company, magic happens. I'm speechless. Like, how do I get it? Tell me how I get it. You go to nimble.com and you sign up and and Stephanie, I'm going to gift you and your team nimble and I'm going to onboard you to ensure your success. God, John, this is like so amazing. And, and, you know, it's really, honestly, it's just like you said, you know, we did that. We, you know, we did the spreadsheets and then we moved over to Trello and then we went, moved over to, I think it was Monday and, and there was always a hole. There was always a void that took us out of the process or out of the workflow and it was fragmented and it wasn't good. And then I would get frustrated and we would go back to spreadsheets. So Thank you so, so much. I am so excited. And I know right now, Devin, in the back, executive producing is going, thank you, John. <laughs> thank you. And, and for your readers, if you go to nimble.com and sign up and, and you feel that Nimble might be of value to you and you want to subscribe, use the code JON40, John40, and you get 40% off your first three months. John, that's amazing. What an incredible gift. One last question for you. As you know that the whole entire show is based on obstacles into opportunities, what is the biggest obstacle that you have faced that you've been able to turn into an opportunity looking back right now as you are right now? Well, with Nimble, we pioneered social serum and social selling by going out and building integrations with all the standard places where people keep contacts. And I think the biggest place people keep contacts from a business perspective is LinkedIn. And we had the public and private APIs and built an incredible integration. And they actually tried to buy Nimble, but in the end, didn't offer me enough money, wanted me to come build Sales Navigator. And that fell through. And then they cut the API off to us and everybody else. Facebook also cut off the API because they wanted you to go to Facebook to consume it and not have us build a front end where you weren't consuming their advertising. And in the end, we started to lose the value that we created with a social serum that builds itself. And so we had to find a new promise. And about this time, Microsoft came out with Microsoft 365. And I knew because I watched Microsoft eat Novell that Microsoft would eat G Suite. 
And so we started to build integrations with the products, relationships with the people at Microsoft, and uh, that gave us access to programs, which last year Microsoft signed a global reseller agreement with Nimble. We've become the simple serum for Microsoft 365. We're the gateway to their crown jewels of Azure, Power BI, and even Dynamics. And they're literally paying their distributors $20,000 each to go out and push Nimble to their resellers because most Microsoft resellers sell plumbing to plumbers. They sell Microsoft 365 backup security migration. They don't sell business solutions front and back office today. And they don't sell Dynamics or Power BI. And if Microsoft wants to achieve its revenue goals over time, they need to transform their resellers into business solution sellers. And Nimble is a perfect solution to do that. We did that with Goldmine and Novell Microsoft resellers in the past. We're going to do that today with Nimble because it's so easy to sell Nimble on top of Microsoft 365. And once they do that, because we're integrated into Azure and the Power Family products, it'll be easy for the resellers to get to know those other products and then bring those in and transform their customers by transforming themselves. So, John, in looking, I have such an amazing job. I get to meet people like you. I get to meet incredible entrepreneurs. I get to really, really learn and I get to share this with my network. The biggest thing that I'm taking away from this, there's so many gifts and there's so many lessons in this, and I can't thank you enough for coming and joining us today. Your anticipation level, like what you anticipate the future to be, how you see the field is so amazingly different. And that's the one thing I want our listeners to take away is look at how you're constantly anticipating what's next. Look at how you're constantly anticipating the client and talking to the client and hearing kind of hearing between the lines. While they share with you a lot of a lot of different things, a lot of times clients don't exactly know what they're missing. They just know that they're missing something. And I think that through your amazing tenure, you've been able to create so many fascinating relationships. And I want to sincerely thank you for coming on our show and gifting our audience such an amazing discount for Nimble and for actually just being such an inspiration to me personally. Thank you, Stephanie. That's very kind of you. You know, as, as much as I've achieved, I really feel like I still have more to give. And I think that one of the things I learned from becoming seriously ill in my 40s and surviving that is I really believe that we're on this planet to grow our soul. And I think the best way to grow your soul is by helping other people grow theirs. And I believe that relationships are the heart of any human being, that the ripples that you leave from the splashes that you make in the pond of the universe is all that they're going to remember you by. And I really believe that if you spend your time daily paying other people forward, finding ways to blow wind in other people's sales, even if it means putting your fucking phone down and paying attention to the clerk that's checking your groceries out at the market and giving them the gift of your presence, your eyes and a smile is, is paying the universe forward. And I think that uh, by scaling nimble, to tens of millions of people to help them build the relationships to achieve their dreams is my life's work that I'm I'm getting close to being there and it and it feels good. I think that that's such an amazing reminder just just stopping and looking someone in the eye. When you ask the question, give them enough respect or courtesy to hear their answer and connect with them. It is not yeah. difficult. Kindness, respect, humility, empathy are all free. Slow down and actually do it. Engage. Leave somebody better than when you first found them. And it's it's so 
simple, but I guess for some it's so not easy. So I really appreciate you saying that. And, and, and I want to I want to leave one last thought. Please. As a young entrepreneur who was fortunate enough to get so much success so early, I think I was cocky when I was younger, mm-hmm. and I think that by going through the struggles that I did afterwards softened my heart and my soul and made me a better human being and a better entrepreneur. And so, and I think my kids helped me to do that as well. And so I say to any entrepreneur, especially the successful ones, just, you know, remember that it's not all about what you did or have done, but it's really about the people around you that have helped you to do that. And just remember to have humility and, and empathy at all times. Absolutely. Lift others. Lift others. Yeah. John, where do people find you if they want to follow your journey and find out more? So you can Google me, uh, J-O-N Ferrara, F-E-R-R-A. Uh, in fact, I recommend Googling yourself because people will Google you. And if you don't show up well on the first page, you can actually fix that by building a Wikipedia page about yourself. It's really easy, just follow the rules. So Google me and connect with me on whatever channel is most comfortable for you, or I'll make it easy. My email is jon at nimble.com. John, thank you so much. This has been beautiful and I hope to do it again in the future. Thank you, Stephanie, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit that subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. Also, head over to YouTube to check out all of the live videos on our new podcast channel, Spin It with Stephanie Malik. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com.